Hey guys, and welcome to Fika with Rice, a podcast about life hacks, inspirational life stories, routines, and keys to success. I'm your host, Frederick Van Hoon, and each week I meet some of the most incredible people in the world from self-made millionaires, best-selling authors, experts, and world-class athletes. My goal is to extract their wisdom, mindset, tools, so you can use them in your daily life, but above all, to inspire you. Let's get this Fika started. Welcome to episode 13 by Fika with Rice. This week we meet the awesome adventurer Ash Dykes from Wales. He holds three world records. He achieved his two first world records trekking across Mongolia and Madagascar. And in 2019 he achieved his third official world record, becoming the first person to walk along the Yangtze River, the longest river in Asia. In this episode we hear Ash's story about his methods of training his mind for something people call impossible his training routines, and what a gift travel is. A very inspirational conversation filled with nuggets of following your dreams and achieving the impossible. This is Ash's story. Let's go. Hello, Ash. Welcome to Fika with Rice. I'm really stoked to have you here. You have such an inspirational story, three times world first records, and I'm humbled to have this conversation with you. Thank you for being here with me. No, great to be here. Thanks for the invite. Thank you. I am taught by starting this conversation because you're a young lad. What did your mother or your father teach you about discipline growing up? About discipline? I guess they always kind of just taught me that, you know, if you want something in life, you've got to, no one's going to hand it to you on a plate. You know, you've got to, you've got to work hard. By work, working hard, you've got to sacrifice a lot as well, a lot on, on what you love and what you enjoy doing, you know, knuckle down for the bet that you can capture that and, and live a better life in the future type of thing. And so, you know, that really helped in terms of pursuing my passion, sacrifice the little wins temporarily for the big wins later on. So I stayed disciplined, visualized that through this current hard work, whether it was working in a fish and chip shop, working as a lifeguard, you know, it will all pay off. By not having nights out or as many nights out with the lads, stay disciplined regardless of me not being motivated. You know, I will reap the rewards later on. Was there, did they put you in sports or do you remember a specific moment that your mother or your father disciplined you or taught you a specific lesson related to that? No, I'd say my parents are, are, you know, very laid back. They are very great parents, very supportive. You know, they weren't hard on me. They would prefer to see me doing something that is risky and dangerous, but really enjoying it and being happy rather than doing something I don't enjoy and being unhappy, but that is safe and, you know, safe here in the UK or here in Wales. So I think they knew that I was probably quite stubborn and whatever I decide on, it doesn't really matter what my parents think. I would be going for it regardless. So they either choose to support me and be there for me, which they were. Luckily, they were very supportive. So, um, yeah, I just kind of taught myself a lot of stuff when I set off at age 19 about the, the real world, the real outdoors and whatnot, you know. What was your first job? Ash, because you, you, you mentioned that you were working in a fish and, fish and, ship, a fish and chip yeah. shop. Was that your first job? Yeah. And how was. old were you? I was. How old was I? I think I was 15. 
I had done volunteer work before that, well, like when I was 13, but my first paid job was at a fish and chip shop, yeah, locally here in Wales, you know, working, what, £3 an hour it was, or £3.10. <laughs> Awful little job, you know, just working with the spuds, serving the fish and chips, grim times. But that was the beginning, you know, humble beginnings. <laughs> there we are. And I then progressed on to a waiter, you know, and then I was a waiter in my local restaurant. And then I became a lifeguard, which was better money. I got my lifeguarding job at 18. And that was, you know, much better pay where I could really knuckle down and, and save money that I needed to travel. Because I don't come from a financial background, if you like, you know, all of money that I needed had to be earned by myself. There was no one to hand me money or there was nothing good to sell, you know? So I had to really put in the hours, work hard, save the money. And so I did that predominantly through lifeguarding. You mentioned that you wanted to save money to travel. Have you ever, have you always wanted to travel since you grew up? Was that like a big dream when you grew up? Yeah, I think so. I think, you know, I probably didn't realize it when I was younger, but all signs were pointing in that direction, you know, through stories that I would hear, through photos, you know, in magazines, through online, through documentaries, you know, like David Attenborough shows, always sort of wanting to be out there amongst it rather than watching it from a TV, you know. And I think subconsciously it was, it was, just deep desire was set in stone quite early. I just never really thought that it was possible. You know, I thought you need a lot of money to do these kinds of things. And then that's when I stopped working on the budget. You know, I went from high school to college. I was doing a two-year college course in outdoor education. And all of the rest of the students were going on to like university or the military. And for me, I just knew that neither of those really interested me. I knew that I would want to set off to, to travel. And then I, I thought, let's break down the costings. And when I did break down the costs to make travel happen, you know, we are talking a shoestring budget. We are talking like three, four pound hostels living with 18 other people. We are talking the cheapest places to go because we couldn't really afford the expensive places. It was just me and my friend. You know, the cheapest long haul flights, maybe 31 hours. It doesn't matter. Let's get the cheapest plane ticket. And we realized that we could actually do it and it wasn't that expensive. And so that's what we were working towards, saving the money to make travels happen on a shoestring budget. Man, <laughs> Ash, like it sounds horrible, but like a lot of fun, like memories for life. I mean, that's yeah. what you're going to be remembering and like laughing about when you're 80, you know? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. I remember one time just being in Singapore and it was, Singapore was a lot more expensive to the other sort of Southeast Asian countries that we had been to. And I remember this one specific restaurant. If you go back after 10 PM, it's kind of like the leftover food. So it's the cheapest food. You get like 50% off. And I remember every day we would, we would stay hungry until 10 PM before bed, for example, and then just go straight to this restaurant. Uh, and get 50% off the meals just because we were living dirt cheap. You know, that's, that's a little example of how, how cheap we were living. We were only probably saving 50 pence or something, you know, but that 50 pence can go a long way. 
I love that. I've been to Singapore. Yeah, it's a bit expensive. You, I mean, you have cheap places too, but you you really yeah. need to know where your dollar exactly. uh, or your pound can go lo- go far yeah. away, right? To use the Singapore yeah. dollar there. But yeah, you, you do, especially as a nineteen-year-old with like literally hardly any money. <laughs> you know, all of those extra pennies make a difference. You can go towards another meal or some accommodation elsewhere. Luckily, it's not like that anymore. But back then, you know, when I was 19, some 10 years ago, it was very much like that. <laughs> it was very much like that. Which yes. is sort of back up, you know. You need to go there to get to where I am now, I guess. So, Ash, like you had these big dreams when you were 15, 16, 17 to travel, even younger, I understand. Where did you want to travel? It was mainly Asia that excited me the most. You know, I didn't, I liked the idea of sort of America. And Australia as well, but I thought that it's kind of, it's all, it's not, but it's kind of a little bit like going home from home. You know, they still have the same sort of rules. There's still the same sort of health and safety, which did my head in in the UK. Communication's easy. You know, it's the same language, similar foods to some extent. Whereas for me, Asia was like a different world. You know, that excited me. Different wildlife, different cultures, different traditions different foods and delicacies and not only Asia as a whole but all of the countries within Asia are completely completely different to one another and it was that that really hooked me you know I wanted an adventure um, and I knew Asia would be the place for raw adventure to get off the beaten track to explore deserts jungles mountains to get lost in translation with the language to eat food that is complete, like, that you don't find on any Western menus. It excited me. So me and my friend, we very quickly decided that Asia would be the first place that we would be going. And it's, you know, depending on which countries you go to, it's a lot cheaper as well. So the money can get you a lot further. So we first went age 19 to China. China was like a wild place. We got off the plane age 19. We've got people on their, on their bikes offering to take us to our hostel, which was like 20 miles away, just on a bicycle, you know? It was wild and we couldn't communicate. And we kind of just dropped ourselves in the deep end, really. You know, we didn't ease ourselves into this. We were like straight into the deep end, but we loved it. We were tracking the Great War. You know, we were doing all of the tourist stuff at first. Um, it was only a couple of weeks after that what decided to, to get off this tourist route and take on some mad, crazy, and you know dangerous ridiculous adventures so that's when it pretty much all started age 19 just off we went doing these crazy adventures that sounds really cool i resonate a lot with you ash because i also grew up from very humble beginnings my parents they worked in the factory like a manufacturing company in sweden like just like working with metal like day in day out you know yeah so we didn't have a lot of money to travel. And I always wanted to travel to Asia, explore China, Japan. Like I was watching these documentaries like you. I was like, oh, this yeah. capital of Japan is Tokyo. This is the, the population. Like this is the, the main food there and et cetera, yeah. and et cetera. So I always wanted to travel as well. And I made it my career, you know, like to adventure myself and travel and send people overseas. Yeah. But How did it start for you then? I, the way I started, well, I went to, to uni, university, to a business yeah. school. And my, you know what? My number one goal was 
well, of course, to study and do well. But I was like, I need to go on exchange programs because mm. that's what I'm going to be able to go abroad, you know? Yeah. And I went to China, Shanghai in 2007. Nice. So I was 21, I think. It must have been more or less the same time, like when yeah. you went there the first time. Uh, 2010. 2010, okay, um, yeah, during the World uh, Expo. Yes, that's uh, right, yeah. Uh, well, I think that's when China started to open up a little bit more, 2010, yeah. you know? Yeah, it was Where, very rugged back then. Yes. In, in the space of 10 years, it's, it's changed an unbelievable amount. It, I went again in 2020, of course, for Mission Yangtze. And the cities, tell you what, they haven't all developed in such a short space of time. It's amazing. It is true. But where did you go when you were 19 the first time? We're going we're gonna to dig deep in the Yangtze River adventure. But when you went there the first time, shoestring yeah. budget, 19 yeah. years old, where did you go in order to experience this adventure in China? So I first went to Beijing, then down to Shanghai, over to Hong Kong. And all of this was probably about two, three weeks. It was very much on the beaten track, as I mentioned. We then went from China to Thailand and crossed to Cambodia, went to Phnom Penh. And we were in Cambodia and we absolutely loved it. And the thing that we loved is we could get off the beaten track quite easily. You know, there was a certain amount of tourists in certain places, but me and my friend, we pretty much just took on little adventures outside the city center. You know, that's how it pretty much started. We were then working on currency, counting our pennies, seeing how much we're spending per day on the Mekong Riverbank. And I suggested, you know, let's do an adventure. Let's get the cheapest bicycles we can find and let's cycle across Cambodia and into Vietnam and then the length of Vietnam. And my friend laughed. He, he liked the idea. He said, that sounds great, but on, on what bicycles? And there was this screeching noise behind us. And we turned around and it was this little old lady cycling this sort of, really old school grandma bicycle if you like and it looked affordable for me i said well why don't we purchase two of those bikes and off we go they were 10 pounds 10 dollars or 10 euros and uh, we did we got the most ridiculous bikes we could find and we cycled over 1130 miles across cambodia across the length of vietnam and that was the catalyst that was the beginning to what is now an adventure career you know, I found my niche, I found my passion. We were chased by dogs, we were hit by mopeds, we were dodged by lorries. We were spending about one to two euros a day. We were sleeping out in the sticks, we were eating noodles. Uh, we had no map, no technology, no phones, no pump, no puncture repair kit. We literally just bought a bicycle, got a non-waterproof tent for a couple of euros, and off we went, and that was pure adventure we didn't see any other tourists we were able to mix and mingle with the locals i absolutely loved the, lo the locals in cambodia were amazing they would always invite us inside i never want anything in return they would feed us up they would wish us well they were just incredible and that i believe was the hook you know i think then i was like yeah, it was crazy and we were hit by mopeds and whatnot, but that was proper adventure. I remember when we were cycling up the hills at nighttime, we would have like this tourist bus go past us full of tourists sleeping, missing out on this like scenery on the night sky. 
just watching a movie, a Hollywood movie, and I was like, no, come on, you're in Cambodia, you know, you got to experience it, get out amongst it. And that's what I did do. You know, big inspiration for me as well is, is the movie The Beach. You know, one of the quotes he says about everyone traveling thousands of miles just to wind up doing the same damn thing. And I didn't want to do that. And so, yeah, Cambodia and Vietnam, they were the catalysts. Thank you very much, Ash. I'm so happy. You know, my parents are from Cambodia. I've been there so yeah. many times. I love, I mean, I have know. You've been there many times, yeah. Yeah, many times. I, I love nice. it there, you know, and it's so true. I've been to, I think it's over 60 countries or something around the world. But there, I mean, I want to be humble, but there's something special with the locals in Cambodia. There's something special, you know. Oh, it was amazing. It was amazing. Yeah. So, yeah, definitely some of the nicest people I've ever come across on my travels as well, for sure. And especially because it was the beginning, you know? Yes. Sort of non, no experience at all. And I do say the locals can even make or break an experience. And the locals of Cambodia made that experience ex extra special. Um, and that's why I also did want to continue. I loved it. It was great. And I will be back there for sure. That sounds nice, Ash. What's the nicest thing a stranger did to you when oh. you were in Cambodia? Oh, I would say... One that really springs, there were many, but one that springs to mind is when I had a puncture on my back tire. We were cycling through the night. It was about two o'clock in the morning. And so obviously I couldn't cycle anymore. I had the heavy rucksack on the back. I had to push it up over the hills and whatnot. And we came across this, this sort of hut uh, in the hills alongside the road. And the, we could see that there was a light on. They were like watching TV or, or, or something. And, so I sort of walked in. I thought, you know, a stranger at two o'clock in the morning. It's a little bit rude, but I thought, ah, oh, let's just try it. And I walked in and they greeted us as if it was like, a, I don't know, one o'clock in the afternoon. You know, they came out, they were speaking to you. Obviously, there was no communication in terms of the language barrier, but smiles and handshakes. And I pointed to the back, back tire and they brought my bike inside, me and my friend inside. They gave us some food, allowed us to just chill um, on the chairs. And the guy was just nails. He, he sorted out the puncture within, within a blink of the eye and wished as well, gave us some, some biscuits or some stock to take on our journey. And I was like, what? That's two o'clock in the morning. Can you imagine in the UK knocking on someone's door at two o'clock saying, I've got a puncture, will you fix it? It just wouldn't, it just wouldn't happen here. And so that was just, that was a special moment, you know, something really nice. And, you know, and he wanted, they wanted nothing in return. Of course, they were just like, yeah, no, enjoy your cycle. Have a good experience. Wow, I loved it. But there oh. were many, many, many moments like that. Oh man, you have, I mean, you're filled with these stories. I mean, that's a story to tell your grandchildren, you know, in the future. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Many like that, and it's mad. How did that go to wanting to cross or walk along the Yangtze River by foot? It's not something that you wake up one day and be like, well, I feel like crossing the, the Yangtze River for the next yeah. year. Yeah, you're right. It's not. And so this is a buildup of many, many different adventures. So after that Cambodian trip, we then ventured into Thailand. And then we crossed the border illegally, effectively, but we crossed the border from Thailand into Myanmar via the jungle with a machete and learn how to survive in the jungle with the Burmese hill tribe. An amazing experience. Again, very humbling to learn only a fraction of what these guys know. And then after that, we then ventured further down Southeast Asia and went to Singapore, where it was expensive. 
We hopped over to Australia to try to find work, but Australia was a very expensive place. It was too expensive for me and my friends, so we, we didn't really survive so well in Australia. We were doing some mango picking and whatnot. Uh, I was trying to do some door-to-door sales, you know, knocking on people's door, trying to sell Australian power and gas. Awful job, didn't enjoy it, and I did not last long at all. And we just started to miss Asia again. I think I had a once-in-a-lifetime one-year visa for Australia, but we only lasted six months before we started missing Asia. So we thought, you know, let's just sack this life in Australia. Let's go back to Asia, you know. And um, this time we went to India and we were trekking the Himalayas. Again, no permits. It was all reckless stuff, not even the right gear. Trekking the Himalayas right up north on the border of Pakistan. We traveled the length of, of India, you know, stopping off at different cities and whatnot. And then money was running low from lifeguarding. But we had had a plan in Wales before we set off for traveling. And that was to become sufficient in scuba diving enough whereby we only need one more qualification to our name and would be able to teach and find work. So we then went from India to Thailand. And luckily, you know, for the next two years, I was living and working in Thailand as a master scuba diving instructor, as a Muay Thai fighter. And it was an amazing lifestyle, two whole years, you know, just living the beach life, the extreme sports, the fitness, the martial arts, all of that. It was wicked. But there was something about these early adventures, like the Cambodia cycle, like the Himalayas, the Burmese hill tribe, that was just deep in my mind still. And although I was in Thailand living the life, I couldn't ignore my passion for adventure, you know, and I just kept thinking over and over again, different adventure ideas. It became dangerous because I'm leading students scuba diving. I mean, we're at 40 meters and I'm thinking about like crossing Mongolia and trekking the Gobi Desert. You know, I, I need to, it, it did become dangerous, but I did come up with a plan and that, that was my first world record was to attempt to become the first person to walk solo and unsupported across Mongolia. You know, the second largest landlocked country. I'd be crossing three weeks over the Altai Mountains, five weeks across the Gobi Desert, and three weeks across the Mongolian Steppe, completely solo and unsupported. No film crew, no van following nearby, you know, nothing like that. Low budget, very low budget still. My evacuation plan was so cheap that my insurance was invalid and I couldn't afford no helicopter pickup. It had to be by vehicle, which I'd need to wait at least four to, uh, three to four days for the vehicle to get to me. Whereas if I stood on the back end of a snake, three to four days is too long, you know, I'm dead already. And so this was a low budget, again, another, another crazy adventure. But this one, this was the journey that would shape the career. It was a make or break. There had been someone who had attempted it before, failed on all three occasions. He was a Navy soldier, a desert explorer which scared me because I'm, I'm none of those. But I did believe in my training, my preparation. And I did surround myself in the right, with the right team to help me plan the trip. I moved back from Thailand to the UK. I moved in with my parents. I couldn't even afford no gym membership. I was just, you know, being the tractor tire up, flipping it, doing a lot of calisthenics based, you know, trying to build up durability. And my mindset went out there to Mongolia once I'd got the green light, once funds had been brought into place and, and that was it. The rest is history. After 78 days, 1,500 miles, became the first person to, to walk solo and support across Mongolia. 
which pretty much stamped my um, career. Now, that was the beginning. That was the start. There were features on different TV shows. It was big in the press. It was TEDx talks. And, you know, little did I know it shaped into, into what enabled me to continue living this life. And then came Madagascar. Then came the Yangtze, which I'm sure we'll get to. Uh, but Mongolia was the catalyst in terms of the, the career. Wow, Ash. I have so many questions about Mongolia. Because yeah, that was a long answer to your question then, wasn't it? <laughs> yeah, no, it's fine. It's fine. We went well, three or four chapters just then. <laughs> exactly. No, I'm just digesting it and I'm loving it. So thank you, Ash, for opening up. But no, I um, definitely have so many questions about Mongolia because it's one of my top two countries. It's uh, Namibia as well that I would like to visit. Like I've watched so many documentaries about nice. Mongolia. I'm obsessed, you know. Yeah, oh, but yeah. But wait, wait, living with a tribe in Myanmar, entering like illegally, learning how to hunt. I would like to learn more about this. How did you arrive there with your friend and how did you guys communicate with the tribe? And what yeah. did you eat? Tell me a little bit more about that. It's no, always it's true. Sure, it's quite funny story as, as to how that came about. Actually, we were in a place called Pai, which is northwest of Thailand. And we, were, we went to Pai in 2010, wasn't really, it was kind of like this hidden little place that very few tourists go to. And if you manage to get there, you're the lucky ones who have explored Thailand, you know? Now, I think it's a lot more touristy and whatnot, and it's the place to go. But in 2010, it was, it was just getting started. So we went up there and we were like, wow, this place is great. But as always, we escaped the center of Pai. We were like skirting on the outs- outskirts of the... Um, of the small town, if you like, small city maybe. And we came across this local Thai guy and he had this sort of bandana around his head. He had a machete. <laughs> he looked dodgy as a guy you certainly wouldn't think about approaching. But we were walking past and he got talking to us and he seemed a nice guy. Uh, he could speak a little bit of English. And he was telling us about, you know, this jungle trek that he would like to take us on whereby if we can cross into Myanmar, there's a community trying to migrate from Myanmar into Thailand. So it's like on the border there. I was asking about visas and permits and he was like, no need. I was like, but we're crossing into Myanmar. And he's like, yeah. So we need a visa. And he's like, no need. <laughs> okay, no need apparently. And he said, it, you know, three or four day trip, we'll go there, we'll live with them, you know. And it turned out, I think it wasn't necessarily supposed to be that we were learning jungle survival. We were just going for a walk through the jungle, sleeping out, and he was going to do all of the catching and the hunting. But it turned out, for me and my friend being so curious, we were asking him what he's doing. You know, how do you hunt? How do you gather? So he kind of just took us under his wing and sort of shown us the ropes, if you like. And then we eventually got to this community. This community had, well, luckily they were friends with him. And so that's how we communicated with them is via him. And it, it was just this community in sort of mountainous jungle terrain, if you like. And they were teaching us like certain berries that grow on bushes that act as mosquito repellent, sort of natural deet, if you like. They were teaching us how to hunt. They were hunting squirrel, how to gather. They were gathering fruits and vegetables. You know, there were makeshift shelters that we were building from sort of bamboo structures, like a bamboo shelter covered in banana leaves 
as a roof, like on a slant. So if it rains, you've got the, the run water and banana leaves as bedding. We were, yeah, fishing, catching frogs, uh, a little bit of everything, really. It was amazing. I learned that you can use bamboo for absolutely everything and anything. And actually, the, our, this Thai guy that was with us, he loved bamboo so much that his son is called bamboo. He named his son bamboo, you know. Uh, it was just an amazing experience, just a short one as well. You know what, three nights, four days. And then we came back out of the jungle, but it was one of those that was pretty much straight after the Cambodia-Vietnam cycle as well. So it was like you had to cycle, then you had that experience at age 19, which was just mind-blowing. And it was all of these collated experiences that would ultimately, you know, feed my hunger and almost go deeper into my, into my blood. And, and I couldn't ignore that when I eventually did settle down, if you like, in Thailand. I was already looking to plan my next adventure, you know? Wow. By the way, I'm, an, I'm a vegetarian now, Ash, but I love yeah. frogs. Like, so am I. They're amazing. Like in Cambodia, yeah. you know, they barbecue them. Before we go into frogs, what about the berries? Do you eat them or do you like put them on your skin? Or Yeah, on your skin. So you, the berries, you just literally, if you hit, that's the smoothie maker in the back, if you hear that. Berries, you literally just pop and, and rub them into your skin. And it's like this natural deet, if you like, and it keeps the mosquitoes away. Just little little things like that that were like, oh, wow. Wow. And how about the frogs? How do you catch them? With bamboo, you pretty much created this cone-like effect and put them in the river as it flows through. You catch a lot of uh, fish, you can catch frogs, and then you bring it up like 30 minutes, an hour later. Uh, and it acts as this funnel that allows the water to run through, but anything sort of bigger than this uh, will get caught in it. And it's only a sort of small makeshift funnel using the bamboo, thatch it around itself, and, and off you go. There was only the three of us. We weren't eating a massive amount, but we sustained our energy enough to, to crack on, you know, and it was only a short space of time. But I'm vegetarian now as well, funnily enough. I, yeah, I stopped eating. Although I, I'll have no choice when I'm on an adventure or an expedition again. But whilst I'm back here training, I'm just like making, my, making sure my body's in, in optimum shape and condition. And so I like to go a little bit more plant-based for that. How come you became a vegetarian, Nash? I can imagine it must be really tough for you in Mongolia, where it's not much vegetables, according to my yeah. research. But yeah. Okay. yeah, I think it's only potato and carrots that you can grow out in Mongolia. Other than that, it's very high calorific, your fats, your protein, you know, your yak, your milk, your cheese, sort of, your meats. Yeah, but um, it was pretty much the end of my China trip when I was, you know, the last two months I was coming across city after city. And after walking 50 kilometer days, the last thing I wanted to do was settle down in like a Chinese restaurant where I needed to now try to study the menu in Mandarin. And then had to try to communicate what I want. If it doesn't get delivered, then I'm sufficient in the calories and protein that I need. And so instead, when I came across the cities, I could just go to fast food restaurants. And I was just pigging out on, like I, my body really needed it. You know, it needed the high calorific, the fats, the proteins, the salt. But I just didn't like what I was doing. It made sense at that time to get me through the, the, the remaining sort of month or so. 
but it was just too easy. And so I thought to myself, if I stop eating red meat to begin with, it's going to force me to study the menus and watch what I'm eating more. So that was the initial idea. So that's how it started. And then I did, I couldn't just go into a McDonald's or a Burger King or a KFC or any other sort of fast food restaurant. I would go to a restaurant and I would take extra time in, in asking the questions and studying. But that's kind of the last thing you want to do, really. If you've been up since five in the morning, you're covered in blisters, not just on your feet, but blisters on your back, you're sunburned, you're dehydrated. You've walked 50 kilometers. You then have to wake up at 5 a.m. the next morning to do another 50 kilometer day. The last thing you want to do is spend an hour and a half sort of ordering food and, you know, maybe you get enough calories in, maybe you don't. You just want to go in fast, order the food, eat, sleep, rest, recover, and crack on with another 50 kilometers a day. So it did make sense a little bit at the time, but I didn't like it. It wasn't a healthy option. So that was the initial factor. But then I started to educate and learn more. And obviously there was the game changers I watched, Caspiracy, Seaspiracy, you know, all of that. And it was just like, wow. And so it's not just the benefit for your health. It was the animal welfare. It was the environment. Environment's very close to my heart. And, you know, so help and do my bit where, where I can. I never force it down anyone's throat. You know, it's their choice, their opinion. It's just what makes sense for me right now. But I do know that when I am on an expedition, I won't be able to keep up a, the plant-based diet because I'll be coming across nomads, for example, who will be eating, who will be meat-based. So that's fine. It's just about adapting, that's all. Yes. I mean, you've been indoctrinated like like us all, right? With the game changers and, uh, well, seaspiracy. But I mean, it's true, you know, those are facts. But I, I can imagine, you know, when you're on an expedition, it might be hard, like in Mongolia, you know, out of nowhere to, to be vegetarian and you're hungry, you're starving, basically. You just want to get something to eat. Yeah, you got to eat what you can out there for sure, especially in such a harsh country like Mongolia. You know, there's only what, I think the population is like three to three and a half million. Uh, pop and, and it's massive. There's four million here in Wales and Wales is like, tiny compared to, to Mongolia, you know, it's literally you could fit it in a number of times. So you're not coming across many locals, so you've got to carry food that will last a while as well. And so yeah, that no, was very, very tough to to get by. Yeah. I just had another question about Thailand. Muay Thai, which I did for a few years in, in yeah. Shanghai. And it like you learn so much discipline. Like I still remember the warm-up like over a hundred burpees, like you're exhausted, <laughs> like 200 mountain, like you're dead, you know, like, and the training hasn't begun yet. Yeah. Yeah. The warm up is like every other person's proper workout, isn't it? Exactly. But how did you get into that in Thailand? And what did that teach you? Uh, yeah. I've always been into body mobility, functionality, movement. Um, I was doing boxing here in Wales when I was about 16, 17 onwards. And so when I went out there and saw sort of the Muay Thai and the hype around it and the culture, it is the thing. You think of Thailand, you think of Muay Thai, you know, it's really engraved into, into them as a nation. And I, and I loved that. I would go to stadium fights and it would be absolutely brutal. And I always, I come from like the whole boxing, you know, I, I thought boxing is the one. 
but I saw that Muay Thai and I was like boxing wouldn't wouldn't stand a chance you know it's it's elbows it's knees it's kicks and they're brutal it's not none of your karate stuff like no offense to karate but it's not a, no light tapping kick with your foot it's like the most powerful kicks in the world kicking with your shin it is about killing your nerve endings to make sure that you have no feeling in certain areas which is very serious you know it's brutal and so when I you know when I saw this I, I kind of just fell in love with it I wanted to learn it and you know I was there with my boxing stance going against the Muay Thai fire they would just you know, chop my leg jack it up and I learned I need to find I need to eradicate almost pretend that I know nothing about boxing and sort of rebuild myself the proper Muay Thai way and I did and it was competitive yet you know they have a healthy respect for one another especially when you're sparring they don't go uh, you know I'm sure you've had lots of sparring sessions it's very gentle sparring it's very it's very fun in boxing here it's not fun you sort of get competitive as the ego pride thing whereas out there you know if you'll find a Thai guy and you kick him too hard and sparring bear in mind he will he will mess you up if you kick him too, he's not, you know, he, he just won't spar with you again. He'll be like, I'm not sparring with him. He doesn't control himself properly. He saves the real brute to fight night, you know? And so I loved that. I loved the whole respect. I loved the motivation, the discipline behind it. They sleep at the gym. They wake up at the gym, train two, three times a day, all eat together. There's this bond and sense of community and respect. And uh, yeah, I just loved it. Yeah. Yeah. I, um, definitely hear you i watched so many documentaries as well but you know boakao uh, if i pronounce yeah, it correctly yeah what an absolute savage he is he, i mean the guy is always walking around with muay thai shorts i don't get it like always, you know <laughs> at someone's wedding and he's there in muay thai shorts <laughs> no but i mean i'm serious they wake up they go and like they go for a 10k run or whatever you know back yeah. And then they start to, their first training and then, you know, they're always eating together. You're right. And I totally agree with you with the ego, you know, like if you go really hard, they're just going to be like, well, I'm not going to train with you anymore. Yeah, exactly that. Yeah. It was, um, taught me a lot. It, it was, it was great, you know, and to, um, have many club fights as well. Then I went into the stadium fight where the guy comes over from mainland the winner takes home the money, the loser goes home with nothing. It's kind of like semi-pro fighting in a way. Whereas if you win, you can go back with enough funds to pay two, three months worth of rent, you know, so it's quite a big payday for Thailand. But yeah, I just love the, yeah, the competition aspect. Yeah, it was great. I yeah. miss it, actually. I do miss it. Ash, you don't have to be shy. Before this conversation, I did some homework on you and... I mean, correct me if I'm wrong, but sometimes the internet is wrong too, right? But I mean, you did a few like fights in order to pay your rent, no, in Thailand. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. You don't get much money as a scuba diving instructor in Thailand, especially because it comes in different classes. Like you can be an A class instructor, a B class, and depending on what class you're in, it relies on what amount of work you're going to get. So sometimes if you had a bad month or a bad week in work, yeah, you could do club fights, which covers all of your Muay Thai bills. So we could do stadium fights, which covers your accommodation. If you win, if you lose, obviously there's no funds that you get at all. So that's why it's very competitive because you have got the Thai local who comes over from mainland. 
he's not coming to lose. He's coming to take money back for him and his family. And so, yeah, it is, uh, it's brutal. It is brutal, but it just brings the stakes that much higher, you know, and, and the adrenaline around it. It's, it's unreal. It's unreal. It's almost, it's, it, you know, I say the adrenaline, it's, it's similar to that. Well, it's better in Muay Thai. But you know, the adrenaline that you get if when you're doing a bungee jump, I don't know if you've done a bungee jump before. No, I've seen on Instagram that you have done that. I'm so scared of heights. Ash. No, I do. But this year I'm going to jump from a plane, but okay. Yeah. No, it's, well, if you ever get the chance to do a bungee jump, you're completely safe. It's all in your head. You're strapped in, you're fine. I know you're scared of heights, but just do it. It'll be the best thing you've ever done, especially if you fear it that much. Are you scared of heights, Ash? I wouldn't say I'm, I'm not scared of heights, no, but I think we, I think as humans, we all have this weird concept of being on a ledge, you know, looking down. There's definitely, um, I don't think anyone stands there fearless, you know? I think there's always a little bit of something because it goes against human instinct, doesn't it? <laughs> to jump off something, it's not what you're supposed to do. Yeah. Um, so whilst I'm not scared of heights, there definitely is like a, what? To jump off it is, is, intense but i do like paragliding and paramotoring as well um, i want to get my skydive license soon i do love air-based activities for sure i'm more land and sea-based so i want to tick off my air so i'll have all land air and sea that's cool i should be trying that i've been looking at paragliding you know i would like nice. to do that yeah oh, you'd love it you'd love it like when you're up there that's quality <laughs> take your lunch with you happy days Oh, wow. Okay, Mongolia, we need to get into that. You know, like I said, I watched so many documentaries about Mongolia. And I mean, you're the first ever person who at least recorded, who have hiked across Mongolia, solo and unsupported, which you said. I mean, how was that? Because Mongolia is the country with the least amount of people per square meter. It must have been a very lonely, like, journey. It was. It was very lonely. You know, and I think Mongolia is the expedition that I feared the most. I had a lot of fear with Mongolia because all of my previous adventures, you know, the Cambodia cycle, the jungle survival, all of that, it was always with my friend, Matt Norman, you know, my best mate. It was me and him that we were out there in the thick of it together. And so, you know, there's always two ways of decision making. There's always, you know, someone to talk to, someone to motivate you or to motivate them you know you've got the banter conversation whereas with Mongolia I just genuinely I didn't know how I would react and I had a lot of experience with adventure but it's different going alone I didn't know you know a big fear is I might just straight up quit I think you know I think it's all good when we're sat at home with a cup of tea you know belly full of food sheltered and we see something on TV and we're kind of like, yeah, I could do that. When you're actually dropped in the thick of it, you're hit by, by that harsh reality of, oh shit, you know, this is much worse than it looked on the TV. You know, and when, and when you feel the vulnerability, when you know that there's wolves around you and they will just snap you up like you're nothing, like you're a small meal, um, bears, especially in China, uh, Mongolia, it was the desert storms, you know, people normally barricade themselves in their goods or their yurts. I wouldn't have that. I'd have to walk through these desert storms. 
And then when you realize that, again, the fork lightning, especially in the step, you're the biggest thing in the step potentially in this fork lightning and you're pulling a metal trailer behind you that's attached to you. You've got the steep ravines where I'm pulling, again, the 120 kilogram trailer. You've got the wells, which sometimes are locked off, sometimes dry or sometimes straight stagnant water. So how are you going to handle these water points? You're dead within three days. If one of the water points is closed or dry, you're dead because the backup is going to take three to four days to get to you, depending on how much water you're carrying on the back of your trailer, predicts on how long you can survive before your evacuation gets to where you are because there's no helicopter that will pick you up in a few hours. So there was all of these factors, man. And the fact that the Navy soldier beforehand, he claims to be the first recorded person ever to attempt the solo and unsupported walk but unfortunately didn't complete it. He got about halfway. And even him, he was saying, you know, how tough it is and, you know, what to watch out for. And the list was huge. And at the end, he, he put this quote where he said, incredible is the ability to continue no matter what. And that terrified me. And I didn't know what he meant. I was like, what does he mean? What does that saying mean? You know, is, is he trying to put me off? Which I don't think he was. He was a nice guy. And then I started to get on-ground logistics, you know, professionals who know Mongolia because I'd never been there before. And I got a strong logistics manager involved. I had the best maps out there, like Russian sort of military standard maps. We got the Royal Geographic Society for their sort of map work and research. If anyone had re- done this recorded before. And a lot of the people that I'd spoke to were just simply putting it down as impossible. I'd spoke to a guy who'd done the world's toughest horse race. I'm sure you know about it. The, what is it? The, the Derby horse race, where it's a thousand kilometers on semi-wild horses across Mongolia or a part of Mongolia. And they say even the horses struggle. So they said, what chance do you have pulling a, a trailer, which weighs almost double your weight? You know, pulling a trailer the same weight as a world heavyweight boxer. And so it was all of this noise that got into me. And it did get to a point where I shut down the idea. And I thought, it's not for me. I'm not experienced enough. You know, I'm about to go to a desert living on an island. You know, I couldn't get any, any further away from my current life. And so, yeah, I, I decided not to pursue Mongolia. Looked into a safer country, you know, a more populated country. And then I just couldn't stop that. That niggle, you know, I thought just because no one's found a way to do it, it doesn't mean it can't be done. Someone will one day do it and it can be done. Much bigger, great things obviously have been achieved before. And how have they done it? They've just broke it down into manageable sections. They broke the big goal down of achieving it into lots of little sections. So my idea was to break it down, not into looking into the, the whole 100 days of Mongolia, but look at every single day until I can find that impossible day. And it was when I broke the map down and I looked at every single day that I realized every day is possible. You know, so this is a possible trip. So I decided to, to crack on with it, search for the right funds, move back into my parents, sell my scuba diving kit and, and attempt it. And so there was a lot of fear and the buildup up to this, but I just had to, mentally prepare myself and I mentally prepared myself by physically training. I was putting myself through the grits of it, you know, telling myself worst case scenarios. 
if there's going to be wolves, expect to be attacked. If there's going to be blizzards, expect them to be the biggest. Not because I wanted to face the biggest, but I always believe that if I'm thinking of worst case scenario and worst case was to unfortunately happen, at least it doesn't come as a surprise or as a shock. It comes as something that I did anticipate. So all as I must do now is adapt, crack on with it and, and tackle on through. So there's a lot of, there is a lot of um, mind games with Mongolia. You know, I was, I was very scared of it at the beginning. I have to hold my hands up and, and say that it was not easy mentally. But, you know, I, I cracked on. Wow. Ash, how did you, I mean, you must have developed some serious mental toughness, you know, in Mongolia. But, and you said that you, you prepared yourself physically. Like, how did you do that? What was the training regime that you set up for yourself? Yeah, the training was, the, uh, it was intense, man. It was insane. So, as I said, I couldn't afford no gym membership, you know. So I had my uncle who worked in, like, transported. So I had big vehicles and he, he always goes to farms. Uh, and he knew that I was in need of a tractor tire. And he said that he's come across this, this farmer who said that he's, he's given away these tractor tires for free. He just needs someone to drive them off to take them. So he obviously bought one round for me with a sledgehammer and I, I got in my back garden. I had this tractor tire. I had this sledgehammer. I was flipping the tractor tire, building up my inner core strength. I was beating it with a sledgehammer, really working on my agility. I was sort of getting out in the elements, whether it's super hot, whether it's, it was actually winter that I was training. So it was even snowing and raining and, you know, we're on the coast of Wales, where it's pretty grim weather. But it didn't stop me. Three hours a day, every single day, pull-ups, push-ups, sit-ups, strapping a weighted vest to me, add an extra extra weight, almost replicating that of the rucksack or the, the trailer. I was working on absolutely everything, ticking off all components from balance, agility, speed, strength, reaction time, coordination, to make sure that my body was at an absolute peak condition and taking everything that I learned from Muay Thai, from boxing, including that as well. And really, you know, just building myself up as best as I possibly could, which ultimately really helped mentally because the last thing that I wanted to do was to wake up early in the morning when I'm in my nice warm bed whilst it's raining outside and it's windy to high hell. The last thing I want to do is get outside in the rain because there was no shelters in my back garden and start beating these, this tractor tire and flipping it. But I did it. I, you know, I said in Mongolia, I'll have no choice. And that really helped to almost build calluses on my brain. You know, I was getting out there. I was just really pushing myself physically and mentally and almost just trying to yeah, face the harsh reality as much as I could here in the UK to prepare me for the real harsh reality of that in Mongolia. Man, I'm imagining the wind and the rain right now in Wales. 5 a.m., yeah. dark, probably yeah. two layers. It's it's well, so yeah. warm. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So you get mud all over you. You're covered in mud. You're soaked anyway. You're cold, but you're hot, so you're sort of creating this steaming effect. You're bruised, yeah, your face would beat it. And you just put that shower on hot and just collapse in the shower and let it just over your bruises and whatnot. It's great and it really helped, you know. It, I think it really helped when I was out there in Mongolia. 
it really threw everything at me. I did face snow blizzards. I faced sandstorms. I did almost die of dehydration, which the training, I believe, made all the difference in being able to get up from out of my trailer and, and pushing on. So, yeah, the, the prepare. you gotta, you got to be prepared, haven't you? How do you prepare for a sandstorm, you know? Like walking through Gobi Desert must be horrible, you know? Like probably 40 degrees Celsius and yeah. you're like, you know, your shoulders hurt, your feet hurt. And yeah. You're carrying your, your um, the thing in the back. I don't know what it's called. Not the rucksack, but the one that... Oh, yeah, you're, you're pulling, pulling the trailer. Yeah. Yeah, pulling the trailer. Like, what did you tell yourself to keep going? Like, what was the self-talk like? Yeah, well, so the thing is with the, with the sandstorms is you can't prepare for them, really. And, you know, because there's nothing like actually being in the middle of a sandstorm. But what I could do was, you know, I'm, I'm a big believer on visualization techniques, law of attraction, all of that sort of stuff. And so what I was doing when I was training out in my garden, pretty much this is what I was doing. I was always visualizing the worst case. So I was just picturing, I didn't know what a sandstorm had felt like, but from images that I've seen and people I've spoke to and YouTube clips that I've watched, I would be, whilst I'm training, I was, I was almost putting my mind in that of a sandstorm and thinking, okay, what's it going to feel like? You know, how, how, what's the whipping sensation going to be like on my skin? You know, it's not just sand. I knew that it's not just sand that it whips up, but it's small stones and pebbles that are coming at you at high speed, so it's going to whip you. And then I'm thinking, I need to get a fleece on. And I was thinking, I need a mask for my eyes. I need to wrap my face up. I need even gloves to protect myself. And with the trailer, I can either just huddle down next to the trailer on one side, or I can keep walking on through it, depending on how strong this sandstorm is. And so just by thinking this, whilst I'm outside in Wales, just beating the tractor tyre, it really helped me for when I got to Mongolia and I could see a sandstorm coming my way, it was like, right, okay, you know, you've, you've been here mentally before. You know, this is what you've trained for. It's, come, it's coming at you hard. You know, prepare. I got my stuff on and I almost visualized what the sensation would, would feel like. And I wasn't far off. I wasn't far off to what it actually felt like. However, it is completely different because, you know, now I am pulling the trailer. I have got rubs all on my shoulders from the four-point harness wrapped around me. I've got rubs along my waist. I'm a lot skinnier and I'm, I'm a lot weaker. I am dehydrated. I am hungry. And I, you know, my, my toenails have dropped off. I've got blisters uh, and my lips um, are so sort of dry that they've split. So not only are they bleeding, but they're pussing up. And even in the morning, I'd have to pull my lips apart because they would dry over each other, especially that of the altitude of the Altai Mountains and the dry wind. And that even when I would drink out of my ration pack, which was porridge, I would drink from it, from the package. And as I'd put it down, there'd be a flow of pus and blood from my lips. So all of this, I couldn't simulate when I was training in my back garden, you know? So I can think of what I can do and what it might feel like. But then it's that times 100 because you weren't visualizing it whilst being in all of that brute pain. But it helped to a certain percent that... I kind of knew what the surrounding might feel like. You know, the, the visibility might only be one meter in front of me. You know, I might not be able to move forward because I might lose this little track that I'm on, which is my lifeline to the next war point. You know, all of this you've got to take into consideration, which is crazy. And that's how really, I, I really did 
this is why I had a lot of fear because all of that is for one sandstorm. I've then got all of the rest of the challenges and obstacles and the wolves and the steep ravines and the stagnant water and the snakes and the forked lightnings to all of them to almost break down into what each and every one will feel like, but they all have their own separate problems when you're actually in the thick of it. Oh man, Ash, how about lip balm <laughs> in the desert? <laughs> Say again? How about lip balm? Does that help? Uh, well, you see, look, silly little mistakes that I made. I, I didn't take lip balm. Took no Vaseline, took no lip balm. Again, because all of my previous adventures were really roughed out. You know, they were really, you know, as I said, cycled Cambodia and Vietnam. I didn't even take a pump for the over 1,000 miles that I cycled. And so all of the previous stuff was very reckless planning. Mongolia wasn't reckless. It was very articulate, but there were little details that I didn't consider, and the lip balm was one of them. <laughs> all right, Mongolia, I mean, it's, you have a very diverse population of people, right, living there. You have the Cossacks who live by the Altai Mountains and, yeah. and so on, different types of tribes in the north. What's the strangest thing that happened to you in Mongolia? Okay, you don't speak the language. They don't. Most people they might not speak English. Yeah, I think it was um, it was a Kazakh family in the west, and the Kazakhs are amazing as well, by the way, and the Mongolian. They were just incredible. But this one specific family, I remember being in a hut again, my lips battered. You know, I I think I was only a week and a half into the expedition. Um, so still fairly fresh, but still like burnt up, windswept a lot. It was harsh up there. Uh, and I came across this Kazakh family that invited me into their sort of like hut. And it was very rocky mountains surrounding it, snow on the, on the peaks of the mountains still. They invited me inside, um, very traditional clothing. They had their very, you know, woolly hat and whatnot, wrapped up with jackets and jackets. And I was inside their hut and it was nice and warm. They were giving me some Kazakh chai, which was really sweet. I loved it. And I was there for about 40, 45 minutes. And it was great, you know, but it, it was now time for me to push on. You know, I need to crack on, make the most of all of this daylight that I'm getting. And as I was about to tell the, the man at the hut that I'm going to leave, he was like looking at me very weird, you know, very strange, like he was thinking. And I was like, oh, that's weird. And then he looked to his wife. And then he looked back to me, back to his wife. And then straight right there and then pointed at me and his wife and joined us up like that and then pointed to the bed. And at first, I was in shock. At first, I, I, I didn't really click. I was like, took a couple of seconds, what does he mean? And then, and then it hit me like, no way, is he offering me his wife? Is this a wife offering or something? Is it? Yeah, and then I didn't know what to do. I sort of like looked at her, I looked at him. We were all sort of exchanging looks like this is awkward. And then I put on a fake laugh. And then a couple of seconds later, you know, he laughed as well. Uh, and then I just managed to break that silence and, you know, thanked them and, and made a swift exit. And, you know, she continued to breastfeed her child. And I cracked on with my trailer back into the wilderness. And I was just thinking that whole time. I was like, do you reckon that was a setter? Was that them? Are they laughing at me now? Or do you reckon they were genuine and it was serious? Or... Because in the 21st century, surely not. Like, I do know that it's a thing to ancient explorers, but not in this day and age, surely. 
But I have heard mixed reviews since, since I've done my research. I've heard that, yes, in some parts, it's still a thing and it's regarded like really hospitable. But then I've also, also heard, well, no, I don't know. I've also heard that that's not a thing. But he definitely pointed at me and his wife and pointed at the bed. So I, I don't know, unless it was a joke. Who knows? But I left that hut slightly bewildered and a bit like, wow, Jesus. Ash, what was the face, facial expression of the wife? She was just happy to be there. She was, <laughs> you know, she was just, you know, had a child there and just kind of like looking. It was kind of like not a smile, but not a frown. Kind of like it was a normal thing, you know? Wow. Like, yeah, so yeah. you were saying that you did some homework after this and apparently it's a normal. Home, I was like, what, what is this? And I spoke to my logistics manager and he says like, yeah, that, you know, that's the thing. He's, he's got a lot of experience in Mongolia. But then I spoke to Kazakhs as well, you know, Kazakh friends, and they were like, no way, man. But then it's the same with Mongolia, you know. The Mongolians in the, in the city, they almost view the nomads almost like non-Mongolian. They view them as different. They're like, wow. So when I came out of the wilderness into a city, it was kind of like all of the, the city folk were asking me, you know, what are the nomads like? What's their lifestyle like? And I'm not Mong- there Mongolian asking me what the sort of, what the nomadic Mongolian lifestyle is like. So it's like, wow, it's like two different worlds. It's like they're not, you know, which is, which is mad really. But that, that's just because it's such different lives, right? You've got the city life where you work in the nine to five, they're studying, they're in university. And then you've got the nomadic life, which is ancient, thousands of years. They're still living as they did thousands of years ago. And so, yeah, I guess it is quite a throwback for some of these city folk. I guess they are curious if they've not been far out into the wild. I guess they do have a lot of questions about that, you know? Man, what's the strangest food that you had there? Oh, the food. I did actually, I came across some strange food in China and Madagascar. But Mongolia, what was the strangest? I know that they do have, I know that their delicacy is well like the nomads is the ghost testicles and if you handed ghost testicles that's like a real honor but i didn't personally come across that i came across um like fermented milk like the whiskey and, and um what else was there a lot of yak meat and the yak fat a lot of the dumplings which i forgot the mongolian name for that now it was all just very high carb food and they need it, you know, being out there in such harsh environments, they need those calories, those fats and proteins, you know, to survive those hardcore elements. And they're big, they're big boned as well. You know, they're a thick set, they're structured, they're, their hands are big, they, you know, one of their fingers is like much bigger than mine. They are, you know, they're brutes really. And their, their sport is wrestling as well. So the guys are, are tanks out there, you know. And so you can tell they eat a lot of their sort of meats and fats for sure. The barbecue was, was famous as well. But yeah, no, no real strange things that pop to mind as such with Mongolia. Yeah, I mean, fermented milk is quite standard there, so to speak, yeah. right? Yeah, that's it. Yeah. But how about Madagascar? What happened there? Why did you want, like, it's such a random place to go to for an expedition or an adventure? Yeah, 
Yeah, and I, you know, Madagascar is always featured in my mind. You know, and it features in many people's mind. I think a lot of people know Madagascar, but not a lot of people go. And when you think of Madagascar, you either think of its beach resorts or Madagascar movie, but they not many people actually know what Madagascar is truly about. You know, it's the poorest country in the world that has never been to war. 80% of all its plant life and wildlife found on the island is found nowhere else on the planet, which, which means it is the most or one of the most unique countries in the world for biodiversity. I was walking across things almost every day that I knew would never be found off this island. The locals played a big factor. I am all about the locals, so I have no military training. All of the sort of the survival that I learned has been from the locals sharing their, their knowledge and me sort of being taken under their wing and, and being shown the ropes. With Mongolia, I went over eight days without seeing a single human. Eight days with seeing absolutely nothing. And so I thought, you know, my next expedition, I want to come across more locals because I love the locals, man. They, you know, I, don't, I never like it to be one man and his endeavor, you know, me and my journey. I like to share nuggets of information that people wouldn't have known otherwise, you know? And so Madagascar, population of 24 million people at that time in 2015, and still a massive island in terms of the UK, it's 2.5 times the size of the UK in terms of landmass. It's the fourth biggest island in the world. And for me, it was just unfamiliar. And that's what I do with all of my expeditions. I am interested in taking on journeys in countries that are unknown and unfamiliar. Mongolia, I knew nothing about yet. I had traveled across Asia for two years and I'd met tourists on the tourist route time and time again. I didn't come across one who said they plan on going to Mongolia or they've just come from Mongolia. And as a scuba diving instructor teaching new tourists on a daily basis, I was kind of mind blown by this and, and curious as to what Mongolia would be like. And it was the exact same thing for Madagascar. Didn't know anyone who had been to Madagascar. I knew people who'd gone to Australia or America or India or Thailand, but I, Mongolia, Madagascar, no. And so I was very curious. I love dropping myself in, in countries that I know absolutely nothing about because I know that once I've gone through this country at a walking pace, I'll be very, very knowledgeable on that country. And so the plan for Madagascar, it was a 1,600-mile journey, so 100 miles longer than Mongolia, yet almost double the duration. So Mongolia, it was anticipated to take 100 days to cross Mongolia, but I managed to do it in 78. And then Madagascar took me 155 days to do. I think when people think of Mongolia and Madagascar, they almost put Mongolia naturally above Madagascar in terms of toughness. But make no mistake, Madagascar was the tougher journey, maybe physically, whilst Mongolia was the toughest journey mentally. There was just no break in, in Madagascar. I was going through the tropical dry forests. I was going through the deserts. I was going through the tropical rainforests. I was going through the savannas. I was summiting the eight highest mountains along the way. Bearing in mind, we're still on this one island covering all of this terrain. It was machete in hand, hacking through the jungle. And they were just, I don't remember there being a day where it was just a pleasant day's trek. 
out of the 155 days, I can't remember thinking that was a nice day's trek or that was just an easy, straightforward trek. I was, I was held up at gunpoint by the military. I had to cross crocodile-infested rivers. I was bitten by spiders. Uh, I had to ply leeches off my skin. I had to hunt. I had to gather. I was lost in the jungle. I almost lost my photographer to a nighttime river crossing. I caught malaria and almost slipped into a coma. It was just, it was, you know, I, I'm sure, I'm sure that sort of gives it justice. But there were many, many more above and beyond those challenges that I had to face and, and overcome in order to get from the most southern tip of Madagascar via its central summit in the eight highest mountains all the way to the most northern tip of the island, which luckily I did do despite those challenges. But it it came with immense battles and struggle. How, what do you tell yourself when you're about to cross a river that is filled with crocodiles? Well, the scary thing is you don't even know if there's crocs there or not. In Madagascar, crocs are, you know, tend to be all over in the rivers. But it's this dark, murky water, you know? So if they're not resting on the riverbanks, they're probably resting below or they might not be there. But it depends on whether you want to take that risk to find out if they're there or not, you know? And so we never took that risk. Um, we would, there's always three ways to cross a river. You either cross where there's locals, because the locals cross it every day. But if there's no locals and it's like a wild river um, out in the middle of nowhere where there's no locals and you can't ask and they don't know, then you cross where there's white water being the second option. There's fast-flowing water. The crocs don't like to have their territory too close to fast-flowing water. And then the third option, if there's no locals and there's no white water, if, this, if it's just this dwelling of deep brown murky water and you can't see to the bottom, is to build a raft. And that was always a pain, really. You know, it sometimes take a good three to four hours to build a raft because you're just building it using bamboo and bamboo leaves. You sort of strap it together and, and cross And that's the final way, really. We didn't have to do that too many times, building the raft. That took an awful lot of time and energy. But if you were unsure, then you would have no choice because you don't want to risk stepping on a crocodile or just being taken by one because you do hear stories along the way. I remember my logistics ma uh, manager, um, who pretty much leaves, like, you know, the crew that filmed David Attenborough shows in Madagascar? He pretty much leads those teams. He's kind of like the face of adventure for the island. So he's a really good logistics manager to have on board. Uh, and I remember him pointing at rivers saying, oh, that's where that guy was taken or, you know, a little girl was taken by a croc there. And it's like, oh my God, he knows these stories. And I, when I first approached him to tell him that my plan is to walk the entire length of the island via the coast, he said, why do you want to do, well, he didn't say, why do you want to do that? But he pretty much put in, he said, Someone's done that coast route before. He said, however, there's this mountainous ridge, almost like a plateau, almost like the Himalayan range of Madagascar, if you like, that stretches central east of the island almost the entire length. He said it's harsher. There's more temperamental weather conditions. There's less food. There's less people. There's a lot more wildlife. There's more dangers. And it's home to the eight highest mountains along the way. No one's ever walked it. And so as soon as he said that, I was like, oh, damn it. You know, I've got to do it. 
And so it was kind of, he set me that challenge. He was like, yeah, you can do the coast, but you've got food, you've got water. There's people there. You're relatively safe. It's not so wild. However, and then when he showed me the alternative and said, no one's ever done that, I was just hooked. And from then on, I was targeting that area of Madagascar, which I'm so grateful for and and glad I did. Obviously, it was a lot tougher, but some of the communities I came across, it was was stunning. You know, sometimes we came across communities that I'd never seen a Westerner before. Um, And sometimes they would completely abandon their whole village. They would spot me from a distance. They would abandon their village, hide in the bush, and they wouldn't come out until I had left that village. I couldn't ask them for help. You know, I couldn't ask them for directions. They are gone and then they're not coming out, which was crazy, you know, in this day and age. And it's mainly because when the French ruled over 60 years ago, they were really brutal. And so their ancestors or their grandparents have left the younger generation with these bad images and bad stories of, of white folk, if you like. So when I walked up, if it was that that community's first time seeing it and their great-grandparents told them these awful stories who have now died off, they just see me and they're like, nope, you know, not standing any chance and they're gone. And I would see them physically sprinting. Sometimes they would run up like down cliffs, falling and I'd just be like, this is mental. Amazing experience. Sometimes locals didn't run and I was able to show them, you know, that things have changed since then and I'm not here to harm you. I'd be very, you know, smiley, give them gifts and whatnot and, and leave hopefully with, with, they've got good memories now of, um, yeah. So it's crazy, really. Oh, man. I need to ask you, Ash, like when you were crossing Madagascar, you, did you have a crew with you all the time? So with this one now, unlike Mongolia, yeah, I took, I had a guide with me in terms of translation. And that was purposely because you know, with Mongolia, I came across amazing locals. It was just a shame not to be able to communicate. You know, the record there wasn't to become the first to walk across Mongolia. Nomads have done that for thousands of years. They do it all the time. It's the solo and unsupported aspect. When the locals cross it, they take camels. They do it as a family unit. They, you know, they say it's dangerous to go into the desert alone, especially with no animal. That's just reckless. You don't do that. So the record there was solo and unsupported. However, with Madagascar, it was just to do it, regardless of the team or not, it was a first, regardless of it being solo or unsupported. And so with that, I wanted to meet the locals. I wanted to get their stories. I wanted to be able to communicate. And so I had a different guide. For I had a guide who knew the, the southern region a little bit better. But it was never in terms to guide me because the guide was lost himself. You know, he'd never been here before. He just can communicate in that dialect because uh, the dialect, there's over 18, 20 different dialects in Madagascar. And then a guide for the middle and then a guide for the north. And that was amazing. You know, I was really able to communicate with the locals that way and learn so much more about their way of life. As you were saying that uh, you had so many amazing stories. Did you keep a journal? I'm curious. Did you keep a journal like when you were writing down your thoughts or how do you, is there a way that you were keeping a diary or anything like that? Yeah, I, I launched a book as well. So I, I had the diary for Mongolia that was written. In Madagascar, I left voice notes so that it was transcribed after. And then we 
I published a book in 2017 called Mission Possible. And that's pretty much about all how it started, about Mongolia and about Madagascar. And so that was collectively from the notes that I left from all of these journeys. And so, yeah, I was trying to document as much as I could along the way. How did you do in China? Because, I mean, the Yangtze River, like, it's huge, you know, like, it's so long. It took you 352 days, if I'm not correct. Yeah, um, that's right. Yeah. To cross that by foot. And I mean, there are so many wild animals in China, you know? Yes. Yeah, this, yeah, this again was a different beast. This now took two years to plan. Um, oh, two years. Two years, yeah. This really required a lot more effort in terms of logistics because as China is super sensitive, I needed to make connections within China. I had a production team. I had a distribution team. I had a logistics and fixer team. I then had these guys collectively work and introduced me to the Three Sources National Park because I needed permits to get to the source of the Yangtze River. It's heavily protected. But in order to get access to the Three Sources National Park, I needed to be ambassador for the China Development Association, uh, for the Green Development Foundation. And it just was, a, it, it went on and on. So I had to be made ambassador. I then needed to be made temporary doctor for a year to be introduced to the Three Sources National Park. And then in order to get access, they needed to introduce me to the government. The government needed to introduce me to Qinghai government, which he would stamp and sign off the documents and give me protection by the authorities, which I then needed to be introduced to and get the stamp and the signature from. I won't go on, but effectively, we, I had over 13 stamped signatures worth of documents in order to get to the source. And it was pretty much if the police come across me and try to deport me, I've got the government backing me saying, you know, you put Ash back where you found him and allow him to continue, which is, you know, potentially another first as well. And that was just purely because the teams that I had on board, it wouldn't have been possible with that. And I did get pulled into government officers by the police on five different occasions. I got dragged over to Tibet at one time and, and questioned in the, in the Tibetan offices um, and, be, and was threatened to be deported. But luckily, because of my support by the government, they had no choice but to take me back to where they found me so that I could continue as much as they hated that. You know, the government said so. So it was intense. It was insane. And so you had those issues. You had the wildlife issues. You know, now we're dealing with bears. Bears, uh, probably out of all of the animals, bears are my biggest fear. You can't do shit to a bear. You can't do anything, you know. And it was active hunting season for the bears. I was delayed two and a half months from starting the journey. And my team said, abandon it, you know, let's, let's cut the trip and you can start again next year. But I put over two years of hard work into this. I believed in my preparation. I now believed in my experience because I had Mongolia and Madagascar under my belt. I believed I could get off the mountains before the depth of winter, which would plummet into minus 40 degrees Celsius at over 5,000 meters altitude. And I believed that I would stay vigilant enough for the bears not to, uh, hopefully not to get close. But the locals suggested otherwise. The locals were sending me photos of bear attacks, 
videos of bears running into communities, chasing people, you know, killing families in huts. And I was thinking these bears are scratching down steel doors and I'm in a tent. So there was a lot of fear again. There were snow blizzards, there were river crossings, there were, it was minus 20 degrees Celsius. There were the wolves. I was followed by a pack of wolves for over two days that were just on, on our tail for too long. It got a little bit uncomfortable. And yeah, I don't know how we made it off the mountains in one piece. We didn't go without jeopardy. I lost out of these 16 different team members that joined me in terms of guides or in terms of videographers. 10 were evacuated due to altitude sickness, fear of wildlife, or other injury. I had a UK photographer fly all the way to join me for two to three weeks, and he had to leave six hours into day number one due to a landslide. So he flew back home. The Yangtze River was just chewing people up and and spitting them out, left, right, and center. Even my guide, my Tibetan guide, who was there, in case I got altitude sickness, he could pull me off the mountains. It was the other way. He got altitude sickness and I had to pull him off the mountains. I was like, typical. You know, what is this about? It was intense. It was intense. But six months went by and I was able to then, you know, open up the expedition. There was a different side to the Yangtze, you know. The first six months was survival, wild Beauty as well, don't get me wrong, it wasn't all just, you know, jeopardy and threat for survival and whatnot. It was stunning and the people were amazing and I had seen, you know, incredible sights and wildlife. But then the second half of the journey, you know, I was coming across more towns, more communities, until eventually I was coming across mega super cities, you know, and so I could open up the journey because it wasn't, you know, we didn't have... We kind of traded the the bears and the wolves for your snakes and spiders instead, you know? And it was more interactive. I had Chinese celebrities join me, members of public, journalists. We were live streaming to millions. We were, you know, I was doing book signing events along the way. It's like the two different halves of the journey were like two different expeditions. It was, it was wild. It was, it was great. And I really loved it. And I was learning Chinese along the way. I was trying the delicacies we were filming for. My documentary, which was commissioned by National Geographic, you know, all of the different locals and traditions and cultures and foods along the way, we captured it all, you know. We captured all the environmental awareness around it, the sustainability, the change going on, the younger generation, you know, how they're developing, the older generation and certain dying out traditions, whether that's good or whether that's bad and how the younger generation perceive that. And, you know, it was amazing. Uh, so I was out in China for one and a half years altogether. It took me one year to complete it. It took best part of two and a half years, probably over, to plan it. And yeah, you know, we, we had to track that as well, of course. I had a tracker which monitors every five minutes. It sends off the coordinates, the longitude, the latitude, my exact speed, my exact location for the Guinness Book of Records to follow it. So every five minutes, 24-7 for 352 days. And I think that took the Guinness Book of Records about a month to go through, <laughs> you know, I mean, because they had to look at every single yellow dot to make sure I didn't jump on the back end of a bicycle or whatnot. And they were looking at my speed and, and it took them a while to, you know, to officialize that once they'd gone through all of the yellow dots for a year. And yeah, 
it was just a huge success, you know, and we launched the Nat GRs and fired onto the Joe Rogan podcast. And, and, you know, we're still here working on, on big things. The Rocks agents now on board from Los Angeles, which is crazy. And yeah, it just really took off from the, from the Yangtze and now being ambassador for Jaguar Land Rover. It's, you know, it's building and building. I still view this as the, as the beginning of my career. Although there's been mad adventures in the past, do not get me wrong. I think that things will start getting even more interesting now as a career. I'm sure. I'm sure about that, Ash. Wow. I'm just trying to, again, digest this wonderful and amazing and inspirational story, Ash. I appreciate that. It's pretty wild, isn't it? <laughs> yeah, I'm just thinking like, okay, let's talk about wolves first. How do you, like, how do you get a pack of wolf to get rid of, of like, how do you get rid of them? Yeah, well, there's a funny story behind this as well, actually, is it was me and Kyle, my videographer from Texas, who joined me for four days. And the day that we set off uh, from this community, we were following the Yangtze and it was leading into this deep valley, snow-caped mountains, rocky V-shaped valleys. And we come across some locals and we ask them, we just make sure we go in the right direction. Um, and Kyle films all of this for the documentary. You know, he wants to capture me trying to converse with the locals in Mandarin. But they were Tibetan, so we couldn't communicate. So this whole time, they look concerned, they're pointing, they're, you know, doing certain hand gestures and whatnot, but we don't really know what they're saying. And I just keep saying, oh, Yushi, you know, this way. And they're saying, yeah, 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 but... And then they continue to talk. So anyway, we waved on. We were like, thanks, bye, bye. We carried on walking. And then for the next two days after that, we could hear a pack of wolves. Usually the, the wolves on, you know, they usually cover much greater distance than, than we can cover. So they normally approach you and then they're past you, off you go. But they were always on our tail, you know, always on the other side of the hill for two days. And we were covering a lot of mileage. Anyway, they vanished. They disappeared. They were probably scouring us for injuries, seeing what we're like, seeing if we're food or not. Fast forward six months and my videographer in Beijing has that footage and she contacts me to say that what that guy was saying, because she speaks Tibetan, what that guy is saying to you is that only yesterday, right down that valley where you're, where you're going, a lady was killed, a local lady was killed by a pack of wolves. So don't go down there. But we didn't know that. So we were like, oh yeah, thank you. You know, bye, ZITN. We carried on walking only to be stalked and followed by a pack of wolves. Little did we know it's probably the same pack that killed that local lady. So I'm kind of glad we didn't know that story. We only found out six months later, but it's quite chilling when we, when we did hear to know that there was a pack of wolves probably watching, watching for any limbs. That's what they do. They look to see if you're injured to scout you because they wouldn't really hunt humans unless they're really desperate to hunt humans is quite a risk for them. So I don't believe they would have, not with two of us. It was probably like a local old lady that they came across, tried their chances and, and succeeded, you know. But um, the bears, on the other hand, are a whole different story. They do not give a shit. They will hunt you down, you know. And we came across fresh bear footprints. I saw a bear in the distance that luckily didn't approach. Yeah, the bears set a real deep fear. It's one thing thinking about going to China and doing the Yangtze trek. It's another thing actually being on the Tibetan plateau and feeling the vulnerability and the fact that if a bear 
just sees you and decides it wants to eat you. You know, you, all your family, your friends, all your memories, everything, you're just nothing. You're just a carcass. You're just meat. You know, it's uh, minging. And they were actively on the hunt because it was torpor season. So it's where the mountains get too cold for the bears. They come down from the mountains uh, and they actively hunt before they go into hibernation. And that's the season you want to avoid. But because I was delayed 2.5 months, that was the season that I had to go in. But, you know, there was a lot against us. And that's why the, um, a lot of my team in China and the UK were saying, just stop, go again next year. Because it's not only the bears, you've already had four team members evacuated, you know, dropping into winter. All of the locals are advising against it. And when the locals advise against it, you know, you should listen. But, you know, I there was just too much prep and, and focus on this. And I knew if I delayed another year, and hey, if I did delay another year, I would have been sent back from China anyway because of COVID-19. So Mission Yangtze wouldn't have been a thing. So if I listened, I would have been screwed over. Yeah, you have to listen to that little gut feeling, you exactly know, that little that, voice exactly. inside you. Absolutely. Yeah. Ash, like you were talking about men, not mental sickness. You talked about altitude sickness. How, uh, how do you prepare for that? Is there a way like that you can train yourself? Yeah, you can gradually go up altitude. You know, you can. So the way that I, I didn't intentionally do it this way on purpose, I actually got stuck in these cities that happened to be at altitude. So I was gradually making my way closer to the, to the source and working my, my way up, whereas some crew just didn't adjust to it as quick as I adjusted. And I don't know what that's down to. I think I like to put it down to the prep and how much I train and how a hold of my cardio system I, I have got. You know, I was still training the same way as I trained with Mongolia. The only difference is I strapped an altitude mask around my face. And whilst some people say that that, I've had scientists actually say, because I've been on podcasts as well, with scientists who have said that it has been proven that altitude masks do actually help despite the big myth around them. There's a bit of a myth that they don't help. But either way, I always thought they actually help to build lung capacity because as you're breathing in and breathing out, you're having to push harder, which ultimately strengthens, strengthens your lungs. And so, and it prepares you mentally as well because no one wants to have that strapped to their face when they're training, you know? And so it could have been that as well as me gradually working my way up in altitude. But for my guides and for my film crew, my, the first attempt to get to the source of the Yangtze River was a failed attempt because before we made it there, my whole film crew just disappeared because a bear was, was right where we were sleeping that morning and they freaked, and so they left. They tried to blame it on the altitude sickness, and whilst they were hazy from the altitude sickness, I do believe that it was fear of the local guy just saying, oh, there was a bear right where you were sleeping this morning, and they were just like, I am out of here. I, am, I did not sign up for this, but they did sign up for it. That's the thing. I went through all of the prep. They knew they were bears, but that's the difference of thinking about it and being there. They were like, yeah, it'll be fine. And when they were there, they were like, yeah, fuck this. It's, it's a whole different feeling, you know? And they just left. And then my guide got altitude sickness, so that ultimately brought me off the mountains because I need to get him back to safety. And so there we were, four team members down, 
and I hadn't even made it to the start point yet. You know, so I was like, oh, so when I did make it to the start point, that was a mission in itself, just getting there. And then I was like, right, 352 days left. <laughs> like starting a football match without substitutes. Yeah, exactly. So I had to get off the mountains. I had to send all of the film crew back and I had to have, in fact, I couldn't find new film crew to join me. So I just had to find two new guides, safety and numbers and whatnot. And I had a horse that was strapped the kit to. And we went back and we, we found the source. We went with a national park ranger this time who took us straight to the true scientific source of the Yangtze River. And we started from there. And, and even still, for that next month after we started, we still went through like another four members of film crew within the next month. They just were dropping off. It was very, every time a production team sent the crew out, they were done bleeding from the nose or vomiting. It was quite nasty. So we needed to get them off. But luckily no one died. You know, that's the, that's the main objective is to get everyone back home safe with their, with their family, you know. But bears, like, uh, I didn't say it, but I mean, they are scary, you know? Like, you said that you don't have a military background, but I assume that you did some training on, like, how to deal with wild animals and... Because yeah. they're very good. They have a very good sense of smell. Yeah, they do. With bears, it's just the typical stuff, really, common sense stuff. What I learned from the locals is it seems that mainly the Tibetans, you know, into the, in the Tibetan and the Qinghai region, which is west of China, the biggest attacks happen when, you know, they come over the hill or go through the trees and they accidentally bump into a bear and the bear panics because that gets scared and it just attacks. So when the farmers are out farming, they'll, you know, accidentally bump into a bear. And then there's the, obviously the, the torpor season when they do actively come down, and, you know, but the locals are more prepared for that. And so they, you know, barricade the doors, um, you know, try to chase them off. They set Chinese firecrackers to scare the bears and whatnot. So with me and my two guides, we had Chinese firecrackers that we actually didn't have to use for the bears, but we did have to use for the wild yak. The wild yak are different beasts. I never knew this. I just thought they were just like typical cows or cattle, you know, but the wild yak will mess you up. And if they feel threatened, even bears run from wild yak, you know. That's how brutal. They've been known to ram bears and kill horses. And we had Castor Choi with us, the horse, sorry. And we had to set Chinese firecrackers off because these two wild yaks And they were big brutes as well, came way too close. And it was about 2 a.m. Luckily, it was my guide that somehow heard, I think he heard the dis disturbance of the horse. And he just looked and there were this, these two blowing dark figures in the night sky and the hill in the distance, you know, freaky. So he got these Chinese firecrackers out, setting them off at two in the morning and the wild yak just panicked and ran. And then you the bears, we had to use a lot of the whistleblower, you know, we had to blow our, our whistle to make sure, because if the bears knew that we were there, you know, nine times out of 10, they'll want to step away. You know, they won't want to confront us, especially because it's three, three men and a horse. They'll see us and it's a bit, bit of a risk. If it's one person, they wouldn't care. But 
yeah, blowing the missile, whistle, making loud noises, making sure that they hear you before you approach. Because if they don't hear you and you, then you approach, that'll just attack you because they're scared. And so just common sense stuff, not eating too close to the tent, even eating and then walking further to camp. Oh, wow. The but Chinese firecrackers, I know how loud they are. Yeah, they are loud, aren't they? Yeah, the yaks went running for the hills. <laughs> yeah. Oh, wow. This is a blast, Ash. You know, just to hear your stories, you know. What's next? I mean, I don't know if you're allowed to share, but what's next? Uh, yeah, so we are planning some some really exciting projects. I, I can't share just yet, unfortunately, but um, uh, only because I'd like to share once it's all 100% confirmed and we've got the green light and we go ahead. But we're working on something very exciting on a few different things. And so I look to hopefully share on my Insta, I don't know if you're on uh, Insta, but on my Instagram and website, hopefully in the next month or so, that's what I'm hoping. But uh, we'll see, me and the team are working hard to, to get this over the line sharpish. So, and it will be this year. Okay, that's, that's super exciting. I just got on Instagram a couple of months ago, Ash. Oh, okay. I know. Nice. Nice. I know, I'm late to the game. But yeah, that's just, not a bad I, thing. That's not a bad thing. It's good to, to be honest, I only use it now because it's a lot of business. But yeah, my early days traveling, when I was doing all of these adventures, I wasn't promoting or sharing anything back then, you know, I was just doing it for the pure passion of it. But, um, but now it seems a shame not to share these stories on Instagram. <laughs> it's true. It is true, Ash. I just have a few more questions. Training. I've seen on online that you're big into calisthenics. I think it's mm. called in English. How did you yeah. get into that? I tell you what, I've always been into that, actually. Since I was 13, 14 years of age, I've always been into, you know, I, I think a lot of people just try to master heavyweights before they've learned to even master their own body. So they could bench press a huge ton, but they can't even do five, 10 pull-ups with their own body, you know? So I've always been more about being as practical as I possibly can and sharpening all of the tools, all components. And so, yeah, I was like, you little things, flexibility, balance, all of this, it, it, it matters, especially on these expeditions. Reaction time, durability, inner core strength has always been vital. So I have always been into pull-ups. It's probably my favorite exercise, mastering like the one-handed pull-ups or the muscle-ups. I just love that stuff push-ups, sit-ups, you know, all sorts of weird calisthenics movements. But also, you know, you can bulk yourself with calisthenics as well. You just strap on your weighted vest and that's it. You're adding more weight to the, to the load then and um, can grow in size if that's what you're looking to do. But I think it's, it's easier on your joints. And um, it's just the way I've sort of always preferred. I do include weight workouts as well. Because you've got to have that balance. Can't be all just calisthenics. But yeah, predominantly, if I'm traveling in hotels or, or whatnot, you know, I only need a pull-up bar. And even if I don't have that, just push-ups and sit-ups to, to stay in shape or to stay on form is good for me. And some squats keep the legs sharp. So um, calisthenics, you can take all over the world whilst you're traveling. It's true. I've seen your muscle ups, you know, I, I've actually been training for three years now. Like I'm doing CrossFit and Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu. 
And I yeah. love, I've, I found gymnastics really interesting because yeah. it's so challenging and it I get is. to know my body more. Yeah, 100%. And that, that gymnast is perfect sort of when it comes to calisthenics and brute strength. The gymnasts probably top it as number one. The stuff they can do with their body on the rings. You know, and they have probably the most pound for pound, probably the strongest people on the planet. I think so. But I've been trying to do muscle up for three years and I managed to do my first one last week, actually. Excellent. So. Congrats. <laughs> hey, it's the best feeling, isn't it? <laughs> I know. Finally, you know, finally. You feel so pathetic when you first ever attempt a muscle up and you're like, yay, great. <laughs> yeah. And I'm like, was it that hard? It wasn't that hard, you know? Yeah, once you build up all of that strength as well and, and, and work on that formation, on that technique. Yeah, and you never really forget how to do it. Obviously, you do lose the strength if you don't do your pull-ups. But once you build up that strength, you'll be able to then continue doing your muscle-ups. Ash, I was thinking about something throughout our almost two-hour conversation here is that you've been like entrusting yourself in people's random act of kindness. Mm. Everywhere you're gone, whether that's Africa or Asia or whatever, you know, like you've been entrusting yourself and not just like believing that, well, I'm going to receive kindness and people's going to help me. Yeah, that's true, right? Yeah, I have always been like that. Yeah, a lot of people have, have said that, you know, I have a lot of trust and faith in humanity. I don't write people off. Bad things can happen. And if they do, just learn, adapt, get over it. You know, I just believe that the world is full of negativity if negativity is what you choose to seek, you know? Whereas for me, I prefer the opposite. The world is even more so full of positivity. Yeah, the negative things will creep up every now and then, but they will in anything you ever do in life anyway. And so I've always been very open-hearted, open-minded, and believed that you know, there's more great people than bad people out there. And, and luckily I have never really been a few times being caught off guard, not really off guard. Cause I already, I always know the bad things can happen, but don't rest on, on that, you know, don't rest on the fact that bad things are going to happen. So I'm not going to do this. Concentrate on the good shit that is going to happen. Not the bad stuff that might happen, you know? And people are amazing. Yeah, you know, you rock up to a girl in Mongolia, they see a sunburned, hungry, dehydrated, sweaty man. Nine times out of ten, they're going to invite you in, sit you down in the shade, give you water, and even lay out a bed and, and offer you a bed for the night. Or offer you food. And, you, you know, it's, it's very rare people are going to say, there's a stranger, don't come here. And I've done it in the UK as well. I have done it whereby I cycled the UK when I was 20 for the NSPCC, raising funds, um, completely solo and unsupported. Again, you know, just a bicycle, Johnny Gross to Land's End. And sometimes at night I would rock up in a city, not where I wanted to end up. I prefer to get out in the countryside so that I can't. But, you know, now I'm in a city. I, I knocked on people's doors. I asked if I can camp in their back garden. <laughs> They're like, yeah. I'll bring you a cup of tea too. I'm like, happy days. I love you know, it. There's only one person that closed their door on my face, but he was an older man and he probably felt a little bit friend. So I didn't hold him. You know, I was just like, oh, okay, fair deeds. Now that's all right. Continued to knock on the other door and they were like, yeah. So 
it's here in the UK too. It's everywhere. It's um, there's good people everywhere. I certainly believe so too. You know, not um, quite to, uh, not quite to the uh, Cambodian local standards, though. Hey, the Cambodians still top it for me. <laughs> yeah, you know, like it makes me really proud and happy. You know, to to hear that. <laughs> yeah, yeah, you should be, man. Yeah, no, that they just really stand out. Is there wasn't one bad thing that happened in Cambodia. Yeah, which is great. I'll tell you a, a quick story. So my aunt on my father's side, she's yeah. married to a doctor in like in a small like village, two three hours from Cambo- uh, from Phnom Penh in Takao. Yeah. I don't know if you know that. I went there. I cycled there. I'm sure you did. I'm sure you did. So like there's only be- one like hospital. Well, hospital. Yeah. And. What happened was that he he helped a farmer, like somebody who lived like in the remote place. Yeah. So we were invited to their, not house, but their huts, basically. Right. Which is basically like houses made of leaves. And they were cooking lunch for us. Yeah. Which was, they were catching, they had caught one or two of their chickens, that were right. hens that they were owning. Yeah. And, and cooking them for us, you know. Yeah, and, and offering us their sodas and beers that they had purchased just specifically for us. And man, that hospitality and eating a chicken that it doesn't taste like in the UK or in Europe, man. No. Like, like it's basically full of bone, you know, like not much meat, you know, <laughs> those chicken, yeah, but you know that that's like yeah, the real no, deal. That's true, I remember now. Yeah, you're right. Yeah, lots more bones than meat, wasn't it? Yeah. It is. It is. Yeah. It's like full of muscles, you know. Yeah, yeah. And hey, in Madagascar, when I was with my local guide and we'd get to a community and we would eat the chickens, which were very similar, more bone than meat, they'd eat the bones. Oh, wow. Straight up, eat all the bones. I obviously left my bones and they would eat mine. They would ask, oh, are you going to leave? Are you going gonna to finish that? And I'm like, I have finished. And they're like, no, you haven't. You've left all the bones. I'm like, whoa. And they would actually chew and eat and swallow the bones. I'm like, yeah. oh, God. But Ash, I wanted to ask you about your, all your adventures. Like, have people stolen things from you? I'm sure some bad things happened to you, but in short, did somebody steal something from you? Yeah. So in Mongolia, I had my solar panel stolen. Uh, it was in the nicest possible way. He kind of was out chilling outside my tent drinking some tea with me and when I wasn't looking he slid a solar panel underneath my tent and I didn't see that and then when I went to bed and made sure that everything was in my tent that night which it was I went in my tent and I felt a tug about 10 30 11 o'clock at night and then I just shouted hello and then I just heard someone running off and I thought maybe I scared them but then then the next morning I realized I couldn't find my solar panel and then I clicked that tug because it came like from underneath me, from under the tent. That tug was like he had pre-planted the solar panel underneath to wait for me to go to bed and then pull it and run. And he did. And just that evening, I was having tea with him. However, there were some builders that came by and I asked if I could use their phone to call my agent because I was a solar panelist. And they got wind of that there was a guy that spoke a bit of English and he understood. And it was amazing. They said, if you can walk 30 kilometers 
you know, along your route, there's a little like a camp where the builders are staying. You can go there. We can see if we've got a solar panel for you. You can charge everything. You can shower, we'll feed you, and you can stay the night. And they were really, really angry with the nomad for taking the solar panel. And they were asking, going around, asking the questions, where is it, where is it? And I know the one that took it, but he was like, I don't know what you're talking about. And I know the one that took it, but he just played it well. But I thought Fedus and they were just, you know, construction workers. And they were like really offended that he had taken my solar panel. And so whilst there was that one little negative, there was a band of positivity coming from like this band of brothers who said, walk three kilometers and you can stay ours, charge everything, shelter, wash your clothes, do whatever, and we'll say goodbye to you the next day. Oh, I was like, oh, that's so nice, so good of them. And I did, I made it, and it was a great, yeah, yeah great experience. Wow, wonderful, Ash. Do you travel for pleasure? Like, I mean, are you, I know you go on these adventures, like, do you go to, to visit some islands to relax, or do you ever do that? I do, yeah, I do, you know, I think, some people view me as this sort of wild man, always living extreme, but I do like my extreme luxuries as well. You know, I like my first class suites and my good hotels, <laughs> you know, you've got to adapt. You've got to enjoy the best of, of both worlds. And so whilst I can do extreme living, sleeping with absolutely nothing, I do enjoy, you know, just being in a, a nice hotel or a beach hut on an island somewhere, you know, for sure, doing some scuba diving or surfing or, yeah, love it. <laughs> That's very nice. It's good, Ash, for you, you know, to have that balance, you know. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Yeah. Uh, this has been amazing. It's been an amazing chat, Ash. I'm, I'm sure that I had a lot of fun. I hope you enjoyed it as well. Where can people find out more about you online and where can they go and say hello to you on social media? Yeah, man. So if people are interested in seeing what happens next, now I have got the Instagram, which is just Ash underscore Dykes. If they want to know more, there is the, my book called Mission Possible. Um, and then just the standard website or the, the Facebook or Twitter, which is just my name again. That's amazing. Thank you so much. It's no, been a pleasure to have you on the show, uh, Ash. It's been great. It's been great. Thanks for having me and, and all the best. Enjoy. Enjoy Barcelona. Man, I'm jealous. <laughs> Thank you, Ash. Thank you for listening to Fika with Rice. I hope you enjoyed the show. Who do you want to have on our show? Let us know by sending me an email at frederick at absoluteinternship.com. And before you go, if you like this conversation, don't forget to subscribe to our show on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, YouTube, or Spotify to get to listen to more inspirational stories and life hacks. We'll really appreciate it. See you next time and much gratitude for listening.